All right, welcome back to the show. Um, hope everyone's staying safe and um, being intelligent about the way that you re-engage with society if you've been kind of disengaged over this COVID crisis. Um, today I want to discuss a few things about how to get team buy-in um, on a variety of different situations, whether you're a military person, a sports person, a business person, family relationships, uh, it's important to have collaborative buy-in from the team in order to be successful in accomplishing a goal. Um, it's it's very easy to see in things like military missions or sports when the team is not does not have buy-in to a plan. Um, it's chaotic. It's unsuccessful. They don't win. They usually have uh, you know casualties or losses, and um, it's very clear that the team was not collaborative. Didn't have buy-in. Small barriers become uh, actual barriers that prevent progress or success. Whereas when you have team buy-in, the team will do whatever it takes to overcome said barriers, and they they are not significant in the outcome. Right. So how do you how do you create a team, uh, or at least get the team to buy into a plan? So I'm going to take a few things from two different books. Um, one of which is one that I talk about frequently and is one of my top few books I've ever read. I refer to it frequently as sort of a textbook, and that's uh, Influencer, The Power to Change Anything. It was written by Kerry Patterson, Joseph Grenny, David Maxfield, Ron McMillan, and Al uh, Switzler. So several, several authors. They also wrote Crucial Conversations, which may be more famous than this book. Um, the other book I'll pull from is Leadership Strategy and Tactics from Jocko Willink. Um, so both of these books are essentially how do you be the leader uh, to create change um, or to make a team do the right thing the right way as much as possible or as frequently as possible. Right. So I'm going to start with... Um, one thing from Jocko Willink's book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, he basically taught, he tells a story of when he was new to the SEAL teams and um, one of his his commanders of his platoons was kind of an arrogant, egotistical SOB, right? And this guy thought what he said should go all the time. It was He didn't consider other people's ideas much. He thought everything should be his idea, his plan should be executed, and if they were successful, it was, thank goodness, to him, right? Thanks to him and his brilliance. Uh, Despite the fact that a couple of his team members had much more filled experience and tactical uh, experience and were probably far advanced um, in how to approach certain situations, but he did not care, and he, he did his own thing. Well, in the end, um, the missions were more frustrating. They were less successful. Uh, and one thing that Jocko brought up that I thought was very interesting is that when his plan was the thing they were executing, small barriers uh, were th- reasons for the, the men in the team to basically say, did this idiot see this coming, or you know, thanks a lot for uh, sending us down this road. You know, it's got 
X, Y, and Z problems, right? And they weren't as willing to make the plan succeed no matter what because they hated the plan. They didn't buy into the plan. They didn't like the leader of the plan or the developer of the plan, right? On the other hand, that commander was was relieved of duties and he got a new commander who had every right to be an arrogant um prideful guy because he had done everything he had been on successful missions he had um, achieved a lot in his time in the seal teams but he was anything but arrogant and egotistical he was humble he considered others ideas he didn't see himself as an end-all be-all type solution he saw himself as a coordinator a team creator and uh, was humble about his position. He was willing to do the dirty work with with the men. Um, he was considerate. And when he uh, was given an assignment to accomplish a mission, he basically would, uh, you know, let his team know: here's the mission. Here's here's our goal. This is what we need to accomplish. I want you guys to figure out how we're going to do it. Bring your plan to me. Right? The guys would go then make a plan, and in this case it would be the commander poking holes in their plan to say, what about this, what about that? They could revamp their plan, and then they would execute. In this scenario, since it was the, the team's plan anyway, they already had buy-in. It was their plan in the first place. Uh, now it was a collaborative effort. He didn't just turn it over completely, but he he had their plan, he put his spin on it, and they executed as a team with total buy-in. Now when they run into barriers in the field, Jocko says the team was willing to do anything and everything to make those barriers go away, to get past them, to overcome them, because it was their plan they were executing, and they didn't want to um, fail the mission and be responsible for a bad plan, a failed mission. Right? So that's one way to get buy-in from the team is include them in the planning process. So I think you know that, that works in many scenarios better than anything because you know in a marriage or relationship, um, it usually does not go well when it's my way or the highway. Both people have to kind of bring their ideas, be able to voice their opinions and um, make plans and in, in, and it's an ongoing process forever, right? Um, in sports, you know, it's sometimes it's the coach's responsibility to, to have the plan, but the men get to, they need to be able to work it out, ask questions, um, bring up issues where, you know, if this happens, a pick gets set here, if, if they throw the ball here, what, what, what's the plan? How do we cover this area? And they've got to be able to work it out as a team. And, and as you do work it out on the court or in the office, the team buys in. Kind of leads me to another um, interesting person in business. You may have heard me speak of Ray Dalio, the owner and founder of Bridgewater Associates. He uh, is the you know basically the most successful investor ever having returned more profits to his um, his clients than any other investor in history. And Ray Dalio manages his team with radical transparency, and uh, they basically give more clout to the one who has the most um, sort of respect and authority on a subject. So basically, how they 
create this culture of uh, extreme transparency is they they all have like an iPad essentially with software that they've created where they rate one another almost all the time. So whenever they have a meeting or a presentation or some sort of interaction, they'll rate one another on like you know how well they did, how how intelligent they seem to be on a subject. Um, and how much merit they hold, essentially. He calls it a meritocracy. And so if one person rates you, you might get, you know, a certain rating. Could be positive, could be negative. But if 50 people rate you all the time, then you get a bigger picture on what your actual strengths and weaknesses are. And therefore, when you make a business decision, you give a little bit more um, authority or say to those who have the most merit on that topic, and therefore you'll be wrong less. So that was kind of the idea behind it. But then the team is so um, transparent that they, they then get to sort of understand who's the real leader on any topic and it's not just because you're the CEO you make all the decisions it's because you have a certain amount of merit on a subject that gives you leadership skills in that arena so that's another way to sort of um, create team buy-in is like if you're all rating one another you're all very transparent you've eliminated a lot of the spin in business uh, then it's very easy to buy into somebody's plan when they are have established themselves as someone with merit within the organization. And, and so I thought that was a very interesting way to create team buy-in as well. So <laughs> I couldn't pick out just a few things of Influencer because literally the entire book is a basically about how to influence other people's behavior to get to accomplish a goal that, that you see you know, as the, the goal to be accomplished, the thing to be achieved, the lever to be pulled. Um, however, I will go through several things, and um, hopefully, despite the abbreviated version, you'll, you'll get some uh, takeaways from it. But essentially, they have six main points where you want to hit on in order to change somebody's viewpoint, perspective, and motivation, right? So you've got, let's, if you can imagine it, you've got two columns. The one on the left is motivation, and, and the one on the right is ability. Now, each of those columns is split into three rows. So the top row is personal, second is social, and third is structural. So the top left would be make the undesirable desirable, and the top right would be surpass your limits. Next down, we go harness peer pressure, find strength in numbers. And the bottom, design rewards and demand accountability, change the environment. I don't really have time uh, on this podcast to go through every single one of those. I would highly encourage you to buy this book. As I said, it's one of my favorites. But just to give you a, a, slight, a, a small idea of what some of these things do and a few things that have influenced people to um, change behavior is um, here's here's a, a portion I've highlighted. He says, people will attempt to change their behavior if, number one, they believe it will be worth it, and two, they believe they can do what is required. So if you want someone to change their behavior, you need to make sure that it's achievable for them that they can that, so that they believe they can do it and that it is actually something they can accomplish. Um, 
one way to create buy-in is to tell stories. Now, storytelling is a certain <laughs> gift or, or skill set that, that takes, you know, time to, to get good at. Certain people are very good at it, others not so much. You can, however, identify the certain characteristics of storytelling that bring people in. It has to be relatable. It has to, you, you want to tell both the sad part of why, you know, doing it wrong or the way we've been doing it has negative effects, but then you also have to offer, offer a solution. Um, and storytelling brings people into the, it sort of has that emotional response that like, this is, this is relatable to me, self-identified relation, right? Rather than me telling you the reason you should be X, Y, and Z is because, uh, these are the bad things. But if I just tell a story about someone else who has relatable characteristics, people put themselves emotionally in that character's position and then they identify, they self-identify with certain dynamics. So storytelling is a big one. He says, but you have to tell the whole story. Make sure that the narrative you're employing contains a clear link between the current behaviors and existing or possible future negative results. Also make sure the story includes positive replacement behaviors that yield new and better results. Remember, stories need to deal with both. Will it be worth it? And can I do it? When it comes to changing behavior, nothing else matters. So will it be worth it? Can I do it? Why do I want to change this? And can I change it? Um, another piece I highlighted here, it takes a combination of strategies aimed at a handful of vital behaviors to solve profound and persistent problems. In fact, this is the core principle demonstrated by virtually all the change masters we studied. No single strategy explains their success. In fact, it, it became quite evident that individuals who succeed where others have routinely failed overdetermine success. That is it. That is, they bring more influence strategies into play than they might assume would be the minimum required for success. They leave nothing to chance. So you don't always have to deploy all six strategies and make sure that you've hit every button in order to make a problem or people solve a problem or to get buy-in. However, the most successful managers used more than the bare minimum. And therefore, they've they've continually had success. Um, either motivate or enable a, vi a vital behavior. Some do both. Motivation and ability comprise the first two domains of our model. So um, that's that's two new ideas that I haven't talked about yet. How to m like motivate someone. <laughs> And then how to enable them, right, to do something. So you need to make sure that you give them the proper tools. Make sure you, they have the, the skill set, the understanding, the knowledge uh, to go about this. And then, and then motivate them properly. Um, one thing that, uh, that I talked about in the first podcast about how to motivate your employees without or I think I said incentivize your employees without destroying morale, it's critical how you approach that because often we try to motivate people by dangling a carrot in front of them. And then once they get that carrot, they go, oh, that wasn't as savory as I thought or that was a lot of work for it or 
even worse. Now I come back to work the next week for essentially the same job I performed last week, but this time I don't have an additional incentive. There's no bonus attached to my job this week. So essentially I get paid less this week than I did last week for the same job, same work. And that destroys morale. So you got to be careful about how you're motivating people, what um, strategies you're using to try and motivate. So um, very interesting things in this book. Maybe I'll share a couple more strategies that we've uh, that I've identified in here as vital behaviors. Why do human beings place such a high premium on the approval of others, often strangers? Certainly that's, that's what you'd ask if you were a social scientist. If you were a student of influence, you'd ask how this amazing social force might work either for or against you as you do your best to orchestrate change. You'd want to co-opt the awesome power of social pressure for your own purpose. Savvy people who know how to tap into this erroneous source of influence in hundreds of different ways, they do so by following one simple principle. They ensure that people feel praised, emotionally supported, and encouraged by those around them. Every time they enact vital behaviors, similarly they take steps to ensure that people feel encouraged or even socially sanctioned when choosing unhealthy behaviors. So it's very interesting how... People will behave, you know, in strange ways based on how they perceive the social pressure will encourage them to do so. Um, Gang members do certain things for approval that they normally wouldn't, right? And then they get into this delancy program that's explained in this book, Influencer. She takes them through this process where they basically become accountable to the group. They're accountable for someone else. They are given a coach and a teacher. They're given praise for their uh, achievement of taking the next step. And they um, have like a chain where they, a a staircase essentially that they can walk up, that they can become better at one skill than another than another. And they sort of graduate levels. And they continue to be accountable for someone below them and accountable to the entire team and accountable to someone above them. the social pressure is is <clears throat> run very similarly in, in kind of concept to what a gang would be where you have to do certain things to st- keep status or to keep friendship and um, where these people, but it's all in the positive direction. And so social pressure can, can work in both ways for negative behavior as well as positive behavior. And so how do you harness that as someone... Um, trying to create a team and have team buy-in and um, achieve certain goals. So remember, social pressure, keep that team engaged on on keeping one another accountable, keeping themselves accountable to to others, and uh, a goal in mind. To harness the immense power of social support, sometimes you need to find only one respected individual who will fly in the face of history and model the new and healthier vital behavior. Um, The book also goes across, talks about uh, the types of people who who actually drive influence. And it's got to be someone respected by the community. Um, If a first adopter is someone that's considered kind of an outsider or someone that's a little out there, 
the general population won't adopt it even if it's a good idea. <laughs> so you need to find those leaders that um, the general population thinks is, you know, smart and successful and charismatic, someone that they would like to follow and um, use these strategies in order to get that person to buy in. And once that person buys, buys in, others will buy in because of who, the status of that individual. So there's a few things. Um, I think the easiest ones to, to deploy are, are sort of like be humble, include your team in planning, um, tell the truth, you know, uh, use motivation, uh, motivators in the form of incentives appropriately by just expressing thanks and appreciation for the individual as a whole, not not attached to those are some of the easy things. Uh, all very good books, very good leaders. Uh, Jocko being a Navy SEAL, Ray Dalio being the most successful hedge fund manager ever, and uh, the folks at Influencer have been part of solving many, many big problems for a multitude of companies and organizations. So very cool uh, stack of books there that I would encourage you all to go get. Um, maybe I'll add the link in the description of this this post or something. But all very good books. And uh, anyway, I hope this helps you in your leadership skills, in forming teams, in motivating people. And uh, take care out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to BronsonWilkes.com/store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.